I'm talking from the book of James this morning, and we are talking, in James 4, um, and we are talking about drawing close to God. And here is what the text says. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's take a second and pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning, in the context of community, in the context, in a very similar context to what James is describing here in the book, that all churches experience God. And as Wes has just shared, that there are needs within our, our community, God, And we look for your provision, God. Instead of trying to achieve things on our own, help us in humble submission to just turn to you and focus on you. Not to focus on what we lack, but to focus on your provision, God, and the abundance you give to us. So as we turn to your word this morning, God, may may it open up before our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you've been enjoying our series on James so far. On the connection card, as I mentioned, there's a place to put one of your highlights of one of the things that you've been taking away from our James series so far. We'd love to hear that, and uh, we'll be sharing some of those responses over the next uh, few weeks, uh, whether it's in service or online on our Facebook page as well. For me, maybe it's because we've been doing this series in the summer, um, and my kids are home um, because they're off of off and they're on summer vacation. Um, but there's a real sense in the book of James. I sense like basically he's dealing with a group of of children. That, that I, I feel a lot of what's happening in my home is a lot of like James just kind of feels the same way sometimes. So, like you know, I mean, he starts this off. And he says, "Why are there quarrels and fights among you?" I don't know how many times as a parent I've said some variation of, "Why are there quarrels and fights among you?" This is ridiculous. Because when my kids spend any amount of time together, and they have a lot of time together in the summer, they fight. I'm sure your kids don't do that, but my kids do. All the time. And they fight over the silliest things. They fight over what's going to eat, what they're going to eat for dinner, who's going to sit at what spot at the table, what toy they're going to play with. They fight about whether or not they're fighting. All the time. And we're at the fun stage where I have three kids, so I have two girls, ten and eight, and then a, I have a five-year-old son. And the two girls have went from being kind of rivals to now they're kind of at the stage where they're besties. They have common interests. They like to hang out together. They're kind of fun. And now Tristan, the youngest, is kind of, he's third wheel. He's on the outs. Um, 
he's not necessarily interested in the same things. Um, he doesn't have the same skills. And so he kind of gets left out. And so what he's discovered is that um, he's missing out on time atten- and attention that he would like to have. And so what he's, what he's discovered is that he can get that time and attention by acting out. Pitching fits, saying inappropriate things, picking fights. He's discovered that all these ways are, are, you do these things and then suddenly an adult, a sibling, somebody is paying attention to you. Friday night we went to Le Machine, uh, see that downtown, and uh, it was amazing. Um, but we were driving back and he freaked out in the car. Freaked out. Just was yelling at his sister, was so mad at her because she looked out his window. <laughs> that was his window, she had her own window. It was a real crime. And we realize these behaviors aren't because he's a bad kid. He's just trying, he, he has desires for people to pay attention and to be close to him and to spend time with him. And he's not feeling that he's getting those met in the way that he would like. And so he's, these are kind of a call for, hey, over here. And sibling rivalry, of course, is normal with kids. And I think we see in the book of James that there's some sibling rivalry in the church there. You see, the book of James was one of the very first New Testament books written. That's what scholars tell us. And it was written to the early Jewish Christians. And what had happened was is that the early Jewish Christians, um, they'd faced some persecution in Jerusalem. And so a lot of them had dis- dispersed to different cities um, where they wouldn't face as much persecution. And so these little churches were starting up in all these little, in these cities— But what had happened is because they had been displaced, different people were suddenly sort of thrown into the mix together. Like Wes was talking about a minute ago. There's all a diversity of people here in this room. And in the early church, there was a diversity of people, people with different economic status, different political viewpoints, different backgrounds, different histories, different social views. And But because they were out of their comfort zone and they were in this city, they just met with all the other Christians that they could find in that city. They didn't necessarily have a lot more in common than the fact that they were just, that they were followers of Jesus. And they got together, but this created a lot of tension. Because you had some very, very rich people meeting with some very, very poor people. You had the employers and the employees in the same service. You had, um, you had people, all these different people. And so you had these fights about how to coexist. There were fights about class, fights about employment, fights about how the church was going to operate. Fights about, this person's doing that, and this person's doing this, and we don't think it's right. There was rich people getting all the attention while the poor people were being ignored. There was discussions about what it was for fair business practices and how you treated your employees. There was discussions about how, wait, hey, is this the right way to live or not? Who's going to be in charge of this church? Who's going to decide what we believe? Who's going to decide what's allowed and what's not allowed? So there's all this sort of conflict going on. They're figuring it out. And so James, through this whole letter, is telling these people, guys, 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 I'm glad you all believe in Jesus. But you need, it's great that you believe, but you need to live it out too. How you live together in community is just as important as what you believe. And so he talks to them repeatedly. We've, We've heard about how he talks about the importance of how they talk to each other and about each other, the need to avoid favoritism, the need to treat each other well, equally, 
They need to take care of the poor and the hurting in the community. James is dealing with all these things in this letter. And so he's been working his way through this. And we get to the beginning of chapter 4, and he kind of hits exasperated dad mode. And he's like, why are these quarrels and fights among you? Which is like the first essentially equivalent of, don't make me pull this car over. Just stop yelling. Stop fighting. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. James sees that the source of conflict here is not actually what's on the surface. He sees that they have desires within them that aren't being met. And it's leading to jealousy, competition, fighting, judgment, and anger amongst them. In our house, one of the biggest sources of conflict is that everything be fair. I don't know if your kids care if everything is fair. My kids are obsessed with fairness. So woe to you if you accidentally give one child a slightly smaller piece of cake than the other two children. They pull, when you serve their drinks at the table, they line their glasses up to ensure that everyone's amount of beverage is equal. And if one child needs to get up for a drink of water after they went to bed, all the children need to get up for a drink of water after they went to bed. Because it's not fair! Why do they get to be out of their room? I've heard that so many times. And the early church was a lot like this because they had different people from different backgrounds and they were all trying to figure out how they, how they fit together and different people from different classes and it just, a lot of things didn't seem fair. Everyone kind of wanted to be in charge. Everyone wanted to, to have more money. Everyone wanted to have a bit more power and authority and wanted a little bit more respect and wanted a little bit more opportunity to have things their way. And so they're fighting about all of these things. In particular, one of the biggest fights was the fact that the poor people were jealous of the rich people, which happens. But the rich people weren't really inclined to share what they had with the poor because then they would be less rich. And in, we, we heard back in chapter 2 that rich, being rich was very important to a lot of these people. When a rich person would come into the service, they would, they would, or into the house, they, they would give them the best seat right at the front, the most comfortable seat. And they would lavish attention on them and, and make sure that all of their needs were care, cared for. Meanwhile, ignoring the poor and the hungry people who were sitting right next to them. And they wanted the attention of these rich people. And James is confused. He's like, guys, he's like, the rich people don't even like you. He's like, they're persecuting you. He's like, and you're, and you're just starved for their attention and you'll do anything for them. He's like, and, and they don't, the, the rich people of the community, actually, they don't like you. But you're ignoring the poor people to, to try and impress these rich people. But there's this desire within us to prove ourselves, to have more, to accumulate more. And so there's, we all have this sort of desire. We think that other people have more than us, and we're je- a little bit jealous of them. Psychologist Richard, Richard Beck calls this the scarcity mentality. And our scarcity mentality is that our survival instincts lead us to always hoard resources for fear that we might run out. 
that we won't have enough for ourselves and the people we care about. And this plays out in a lot of ways. In third world countries or for people who live below the poverty line, um, most of their scarcity mentality is expressed through what uh, is called basic anxiety. And basic anxiety is like physical and mental exhaustion that occurs from stressing about basic things like employment, food, shelter, water, the necessities of life. This is basic anxiety. How are we going to eat today? Are we going to have enough money? Are we going to have a job? Are we going to have a place to live? For most people in North America, we have some basic anxieties. But more often, we deal with what Beck calls neurotic anxiety. Sure, we're stressed about our bank account and like, things like that, but it could be a lot worse. But what we, we stress about instead is we stress about the need to prove ourselves that we're enough. We have this shame that we're not enough. And this manifests itself in our desires to be respected, to, to live a life of meaning, and to be remembered as important. These are our neurotic anxieties. Am I making a difference? Am I enough? Lynn Twist, another psychologist, she describes the scarcity mentality this way. And I'm going to read this. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but hang with me and see if this rings true of your life. For many of us, our first waking thought of the day is I didn't get enough sleep. Who's there? Yeah. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Also there. Because I slept in because I didn't feel like I had enough sleep, so now I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are still are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by these thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack, this internal condition of scarcity. This mindset of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments of life. We're stressed. We're jealous. We want what other people have. Everybody else seems to have it together, but we don't. If only this would happen. If I just had more time, if I had more money, if I had this, if I had that, then I would be happy. And it just leads to our jealousies, our greed, and our prejudice. Now, I mean, I don't, as I said, I I don't know if that sounds familiar to anybody else or if that's a just me thing. But as Wes mentioned earlier, you know, we face this all the time. I mean, as a church, we're legitimately looking at, hey, like, we need X amount of resources to come in. Otherwise, we won't have enough. And what happens if we won't have enough? Well, then. And as the person who works for this church, then I go, okay, that's going on. Well, what happens? That might affect whether or not I have enough. And so if I'm honest, this scarcity mentality happens all the time. Well, can, can, can I afford to do that? Can I, 
Am I going to be enough? Or, or is all this happening because there's some sort of failure? Did I, did I do something wrong? Am I not enough? If I was maybe a better, if I, if I was a better pastor, if we were better, better leaders as a church, maybe, maybe this wouldn't happen. And you begin to feel, hear all these voices in your head. And people who live with a scarcity mindset, it's just not a healthy way to live. Because people who live with that mindset, they, they tend to keep a tight fist on their time and their money and their energy. There's some symptoms of, of living with a scarcity mindset. And so they, they, they keep a tight fist on their time, money, energy. I, 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 don't, I can't give to that. I don't have enough. I, 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 I don't have time to help you. I'm sorry. And they focus on the weaknesses in others while minimizing our own flaws. Oh, did you? That's terrible that you did that. And then when somebody, and then when somebody calls you on something, it's like, oh, that's actually not the case. Actually, no, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a feature, not a bug. I had good reasons for why I did that. And when we live with a scarcity mentality, we have this idea that our self-worth comes from what other people say about us instead of what um, God says about us. And so we need the attention of other people around us to give us our self-worth. We seek out organizations, people, <clears throat> people and churches that will meet our needs instead of asking us to meet the needs of others. And when we live with a scarcity mentality... We're fo- focused on what we don't have and not grateful for what we do have. Because we all have this belief that there's only so much to go around. And if you have more of it, that means I have less. And so I want some of what you have, but you don't want to give it to me because then if you give it to me, you have less. And so we fight amongst ourselves to take back what we think we deserve. And the results are disastrous. William Barclay writes, When all men are striving, each one to possess all for himself the same thing, life inevitably becomes a competitive arena. Men trample each other down in the rush to grasp the same things. Men will do anything to eliminate a rival for the thing or for the person they are on fire to possess. So left unchecked, the scarcity mentality is so strong within us that we can never be satisfied. There's an infamous quote um, a, a reporter asked John Rockefeller, who may have been the richest man in human history. He said, how much money would it take for you to have enough to be satisfied? And Rockefeller said, one more dollar. Because he understood that the amount of money that, would need, that money was never going to satisfy him. That, would he, that in order to be satisfied, he would always need one more dollar than he had. No matter how much he had, he needed one more. And sometimes this can be good things, too. There's a church in Kansas City called New Spring Church. It's a huge mega church. has about 30,000 people. And the pastor of that church, was, his name was Perry Noble. And Perry was um, a very popular pastor, um, was on all the cool blogs, went on all the podcasts, spoke at all the big church events. Until a few months ago when his church board asked him to resign because he developed an addiction to alcohol that was unhealthy and that he was in denial about. And so eventually Perry wrote a letter explaining the situation. And one of the reasons he gave for developing this addiction to alcohol was that 
he had this stress and this anxiety. And the source of his stress and his anxiety was that his church had a vision to see their city one for Jesus. And so they had as their goal to see their church grow to 100,000 people. So he had a church of 30,000 people, which is about 100 times the size of our church. 30,000 people. And the only thing that was going through his head day after day was, I'm 70,000 short. I'm 70,000 short. And then what happens when you get to 100? Then what's next? 125, 150, 175? Like, where do you stop? It's just, there's, we have this need for more. When that's what we find our validation in, there's this need for more. Now, I don't want to give the impression, and James isn't giving the impression, that desire in it of itself is bad. That's an Eastern philosophy thing. You know, in Eastern philosophy, the idea is that if you can just get rid of desire, then you'll have happiness. If you can suppress all desire, then, then there's happiness. But the Scripture isn't like that. Scripture says God wants to give us our desires. Scripture says that God has given us our desires and that they're good. That desires can be good and they're God-given. But when our desires are motivated by a sense of scarcity, by a need to prove our value, they can become harmful. So it's not so much that desire is bad, it's that sometimes the things that we want or the way that we want them is bad. So, for example, my kids will come to me and they'll say, I'm hungry. And that's a, that's a good desire. We should get hungry when we don't have food. You know, are like, okay, like, we should eat. And I say, okay, yeah, I can give you something to eat. What do you want? A fruit roll up. And I'm like, your desire is good. Your the thing that you think is going to fulfill your desire is not going to do anything for your desire. I love fruit roll-ups, but I mean, I, you could eat like 50 fruit roll-ups. You'd have like a sugar problem, but you wouldn't have like a fullness problem. And I'm like, well, how about, you know, a fruit? And they're like, no, not a fruit. I'm hungry. I want a fruit roll-up. I say, okay. I say, well, you know what? If, if, and they, they pitch a fit and they won't have anything but a fruit roll-up. And I say, okay, well, then you don't have anything at all. And that's what, and James says in verse 3 that, you know, God says, I'm, I actually can't answer your prayers because you're asking for the wrong thing, with the wrong motivation. You're hungry, but this isn't actually the thing. And so they desire more wealth, more social status, and more power, and it's contrary to the way of Jesus. And so James calls them adulterers. He says, guys, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And I'm sure the early Christians are like, hey, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Adulterers? Enemy of God? But James is like, no, you guys don't get it. He's like, the things that you're striving after are in the complete opposite direction of what Jesus is about. Jesus' whole life was not about triumph through power or success or money. His, his, his whole life was about serving through sacrifice, through giving things up, through giving up his life. Bruxy Cavey says, Christ's kingdom is different in ethos and in attitude. It is a kingdom dedicated not to self-preservation and prosperity, but to other-centered love, peace, and reconciliation. Jesus says, anyone who wants to be a part of my kingdom needs to be last, not first, and serve others. And Jesus says, if you're stressing about trying to get up, climb the ladder of success, he's like, that's not what this kingdom is about. 
In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this, says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound so different from how we spend so much of our time grasping after things? When Jesus says, don't worry about that stuff. Trust your heavenly Father. Draw close to him. So often we find ourselves trapped in this scarcity mindset instead of a kingdom mindset. And so James gives us a path forward to get out of this trap of scarcity. In James uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, But God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He's not saying here, hey, you guys need to be sad all the time. Like the... The life of the kingdom is to be sad all of the time. James isn't saying that. What he is saying, though, is he's saying, you guys are trying to find happiness in a bunch of stuff, and you're trying to pretend you're happy and that your life's really great. But which, the first step to this right is you need to admit that the things that you're pursuing and that you say give you happiness are not, and then you need to turn to God who will give you happiness. And so James does not offer us a 12-step plan to climb the ladder of success. In fact, he invites us to get off the ladder of success entirely and to live a life of humility. And a life of humility looks very different than a life lived with a scarcity mindset. People who live with a life of humility are generous with their time, their money, and their energy. They're willing to admit weakness in ourselves and empathize with the weakness of others. They don't get their self-worth from what other people say about them. But they get, and so they don't need to take center stage all the time. But they get, center, they get their self-worth from what God says about them. And they're much more interested in meeting the other needs of others than having their needs and preferences met. So they give up their preferences in order to meet the needs of others. And they are very aware that all of life is a gift. And so we're thankful for what we've been given, and we're not anxious about what we lack. What James is inviting us to do is he's inviting us to repent. That means change the way we're living. Stop stressing about um, meeting our desires in unhealthy ways, and to let go, to trust God, to live a life of humility. And, I mean, to, to live those steps of humility on our own is a very difficult thing to do. It goes against everything we're wired to do. And so he, he says, you need to draw near to God. You need to rely on God and the power of the Spirit to do that. But in order to make room for God, you need to let things go. There's a story about a boy who was at the beach with his family, and he was collecting shells. And they weren't great shells. They were just like the bits and pieces of shells that you find. And he was collecting them in his hands. And he saw out in the water, there was a starfish floating on the water. 
And so he went out to get the starfish. And his dad's like, oh, grab the starfish, grab the starfish. And he comes back and he's like, I can't get it. Goes back out, can't get it. Goes back out again, still can't grab it. Comes back to his dad, he's like, I, I can't. And there's a, his dad's like, why, why, why can't you grab the starfish? He's like, I can't because my hands are full of shells. And so often we live our lives holding on to the things that we think will bring us happiness, the things that we think will f- fulfill us, and, all we need, and what we need to do is we need to let them go and draw near to God and begin to life, live a life of humility. How many times do we miss out on having our desires truly satisfied by our Heavenly Father? Because in our scarcity mindset, we are too busy holding on to all of our shells. C.S. Lewis makes the argument that if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we let go of our shells and when we stop trying to climb the ladder of success, when we humble ourselves, we discover one of the great miracles of the kingdom of God. That a life of humility is not a life of scarcity, but a life of abundance. Because instead of trying to do it ourselves, we open ourselves up to our Heavenly Father who says that he will give us everything that we need. In John 15, 7, it says this. It says, If you abide in me, if you draw close to me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. When we draw close to God, he will provide for us everything we need. We're going to close this morning, and we're just going to play a song that you can reflect on for a moment that just sort of encapsulates everything I've talked about this morning and that Wes has talked about this morning. And then Ian's going to come. He's going to take up the offering and close the service. And uh, I'll be here at the side if you'd like somebody to pray with you. Um, but I want you, to, as you do this, you can take out your connection card. You can think about what's one thing that God is asking you to give up this morning in humility to stop striving for. But just let this song speak to you and give you hope this morning that you can let go of the things of your shells and grasp the one thing that will satisfy.